0: On this episode of The London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Christy Thornton about theological methods. So we cover a huge amount of material in this episode, everything from just what is theological method to what does T.F. Torrance think about theological method? How does he contrast with somebody like J- John Gill? Does the idea of our theological method having some sort of reciprocal nature destabilize the meaning of the text? What do the sacraments have to do with theological method and knowing God? What can Baptists learn from these different thinkers like Torrance, and much, much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of The London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And in Thinking Seriously, we've tried to cultivate a sort of intellectual culture of sorts, uh, an intellectual community too, but definitely this this place where we uplift and encourage and strengthen each other in things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and for us, cheerful confessionalism. I think uh, these things are part of what it means to be a robustly serious thinker. So I know when me and Brandon started this podcast, however many years ago, depending on when you're listening, it could be even longer. I don't know. We noticed something that in Baptist life there was almost there was in at least in our churches, there was a dearth of serious thinking in the sense of they didn't want to take knowledge very seriously, you know, the the academic sort of training and the the rigorous books were almost looked at as a little bit negative. And so we wanted to push back against that and say, no, we should be thinking as Baptist. We we should take that seriously. That doesn't detract from things like mission. It actually fuels it. But as we started doing this, we also realized, hey, you know what? The people who end up taking thinking seriously in that sort of way, oftentimes go off on the other edge and become very rigid in their, and do, overly dogmatic in their approaches to thinking seriously. And we said, no, we want to do both of these things. We want to be charitable in how we think. We want to have a certain disposition that is modeled after things like James 3, where it talks about the meekness of wisdom that is open to reason, that is peaceable, gentle, all those things. We, we wanted to model that in com- in combination with being very rigorous and understanding all the best arguments and and taking them all as seriously as possible. So that's what we've tried to do with the podcast and everything. And one way of doing that is introducing uh, all sorts of different people and different topics to you. So I always have the pleasure of introducing just a huge range of people. But today, I'm I'm excited to introduce you all to Dr. Christy Thornton. So a lot of the people we interview, I've never met in real life, or I've never had the chance to meet in real life. Uh, Christy is not one of those. I've actually been able to meet her in real life because we live... I don't know, probably like 15 minutes from each other. Well, we live closer. I just moved farther yeah. away. But we can actually congregate at the same places. So this should be fun. Uh, Christy, before we get started, um, oh, I guess I should mention, we're going to talk about like a whole plethora of things. So that's going to be fun. Theological method, torrents, gill, anything and everything in between. So this yeah. is going to be a delight. Now, I do want to get a little bit of background info info on you, because not everybody knows who who you are. And then tell me a little bit, you know, you did your dissertation, Torrance, Theological Method, those sort of things. Like, what was it that first made you interested in thinking, I want to spend however many years and however many hours thinking about these these things?
1: Yeah, great questions. Well, Jordan, thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm a big fan of the London Lyceum, so I'm happy that I get to join you for a little bit today. Um, yeah, so I'm originally from Georgia. I did my undergrad at the University of Georgia. After I graduated um, from college, I served in, the, in North Africa where I taught English and studied Arabic. I worked with the mission sending agency there. And then I came to Southeastern. I thought I was going to be a missionary for the rest of my life. LOL, didn't work out. Um, and kind of along the way realized that the Lord had gifted me a knowledge. And if that was true, I needed to steward it for the good of others. So then I did a PhD. So I did an MA here in intercultural studies at Southeastern. And then I did my PhD in systematic theology. Yeah, I did my dissertation in Torrance. So how did I end up in Torrance? Great questions. It wasn't like that I really aspired to do it from the beginning. When I started my PhD, I felt a lot of this kind of internal tension because when I read the Bible, it seemed that the local church was really central to everything. But it felt like sometimes the way that people did the academic discipline of theology, it felt divorced from the experience of the church as if they were not related to each other. Or you go to a class to do theology, but like what you do in church isn't theological or is it theology? And I, at that, I felt this deep inner tension because I was entering into this academic area. And so I was asking the question, like, what does theology have to do with the church? Well, along the way, I came across some of Torrance's writings and he and I shared some things in common. He, I believe that he like really loves Jesus, like has these moments, This, uh, these like high intense academic stuff and these moments of like real worship that comes out in his writing in a really nerdy devotional kind of way. Uh, And he also has a a high value for mission. So he grew up as an MK in China. And so there's these missionary threads threaded through him. And so we had something in common, but he had an answer to my question um, for the way that theology related to the experience of the church and did it in a way that was really academically rigorous and I thought, you know, if I can learn how to think with Torrance for a while, I'll probably be a better theologian when I'm done. Uh, and I think that was probably true. I'm probably a better theologian having read Torrance for years of my life.
0: Yeah, that, that's pretty cool. You know, I've at least personally experienced, it seems that I become a better thinker and understander and worshiper in scripture of, of God when I read people who have done, like, let a well-worn path of doing the same thing. Uh, so just reading these great and powerful and important thinkers is is really useful. So I do want to think with you, for, before we get into the topic of theological method and everything, you mentioned your mission sort of mm-hmm. related past. Yeah. Was it a challenging uh, sort of gear shift for you to go from the mission field to working in an academic institution?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it was a, a tumultuous journey, but a good one. Um, so when I came to Southeastern, I thought I would be here for like 18 months and I've been here for just over 10 years. And so in that 10 years time, there's been, uh, meant a lot of soul searching, but some of us, the, the Lord just kind of sovereignly closed to d- the door to mission. At that point, I was really disoriented because I had made really every decision in my life from what my undergrads in to the way that I engaged on social media, With the intention of working with Muslims in closed countries. And so for that door to close kind of led me in this spiral of, I don't know what to do, but that actually opened me to be able to yeah, hear what the Lord was saying without kind of imposing my own thoughts of what I thought my life would be. Um, And recognizing that I wasn't who I thought I was. Like I thought I was this missionary gifted person and I was okay at that and like, whatever. But I didn't realize that the fact that I'd always been good at school and like was really good at academics, just kind of naturally, which wasn't natural at all, it was was spirit given, uh, that that was something that could be used for a missional end. And so, and Southeastern is a great place to do that because we're the, you know, quote, great commission seminary. So it was a space where I could like do really high level theological work, but also like really have mission in mind with whatever we're doing. And so I got to kind of create... How those go together for me, um, but yeah, it was quite quite the process. It's taken yeah. me years to to get settled in, it, but I'm pretty settled now.
0: That's very cool. So now I do want to start with a baseline definition before we get into it, because we're nerds here. Tell me what is the uh, like theological method. When we talk theological method, what do we mean? And then once you've sort of given me that definition. Are there like 50 definitions on offer that we've experienced through the history of the church where it's like changed over time? Or is there some sort of like conceptual core where we could say, there are some things that you see across the history of the church that they just all agree on, this is what we're talking about?
1: Yeah, so at the most general level, when we say theological method, we're talking about the what and how of theology. So we, all, we can all kind of agree that when we say the words theological method, we're talking about what is theology and then how do we do it? Now, uh, beyond that, that we all kind of agree that we have to answer those questions at some point, there's not really a lot of agreement, mainly because we don't agree on the what. So uh, because there's not um, a settled answer to what is theology, well, obviously the what is going to designate the how. So the, then if you have a different idea of the nature of theology, you'll have a completely different um, way of thinking of how you do that thing, because it's actually something entirely different. Um, so it's hard to say that there's any any, any type of uh, continuity from beginning to end. And that's true for anything besides like the core Christian confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's like the only thing that we all agree about. Uh, yeah. to be a Christian, other than that, there's not a lot. But there's some there can be similarities in, in at points in time, right? So like there's some things that maybe a, a lot of the early church fathers have in common. There's some things that are maybe have in common in the Reformation, and then some things that we're debating even uh, in in our contemporary context.
0: So when I went to undergrad, I went to a Christian university. And I was pretty much taught that theological method means grammatical historical exegesis, and that's it. Uh, I was told, what you see the apostles doing, you can't do because you're not an apostle. And then there was a point in seminary where I had a professor, I think it was probably Jonathan Pennington, who sort of like wrecked my world. And I got exposed to what would be called, in contemporary terminology, sort of theological interpretation of Scripture. Yeah. So reading things like J. Todd Billings, uh, The Word of God for the People of God.
1: I love and that book.
0: That began sort of like a journey into reading all sorts of other sources, reading patristic, medieval, and finding, wow, there's a lot more to theological method, at least from my perspective, than just the grammar and the history. Yeah. So would you say that if we... It's Theological method is not less than grammatical historical exegesis, but it's more than that. Is that a, a, a good way to think about it? Or how do, you, how do you think about the relationship between those things?
1: Sure. I mean, I think... Um, oh, this is a great question. Uh, so there are two questions actually at play here. One is, how do we understand grammatical and historical in the context of a greater theological method? And then the other is, um, what's the relationship between exegesis and theology? And, and both of those are contended questions. <laughs> no one agrees, at least in our contemporary context, about the relationship between those. Now, I would say that theological method is essentially theological exegesis. So when we're doing theology well, it's emerging from the text and then shaping us as Christians and the life of the church as we proclaim it in the world. And so for me, theological method and theological exegesis go hand in hand. So so if we agree with that premise, then uh, that, that basic understanding, then yes, I'm happy to say that, yeah, grammatical historical is a significant piece of our understanding, but not all of it. Because the object of Bible reading isn't merely to access some historical reality behind the text but to behold Christ of the text right so i don't i don't the bible's not a window to get to another reality it's the place that we go on earth to know god in christ um which means there has to be more than just grammatical historical we have to give attention to the divine object um God who's revealing himself in Christ to us in this in this special kind of book.
0: That's that's a really helpful answer. So now I w- I do want to spend a good amount of time here on this question because I think it's super relevant and it's also super interesting. So not all the time is everything that's really interesting really relevant. So this is a nice <laughs> You know, where the, the two points meet. And I think it's, what does the church have to do with theological method? So I'm going to let you take that initially wherever you want to go. I know that's broad, but at yeah. least now you have you can have fun and freedom with it.
1: I love it. So let's go back to the framework that I started, that theological method involves the what and how of theology. So let's think about how to define—oh, I'm, I'm confusing terms because I just said how. Uh, <laughs> let's think about the what. Uh, of theology. What what are we doing when we're doing theology? Or we might say what is theological knowledge? Now, one of the misconceptions um, or that makes kind of theological method a misnomer is the assumption that theological knowledge is just the ability to say true facts about reality. We should say things that are true <laughs> when we do theology. So, don't, don't hear me wrong. Uh, say, saying true statements, true propositions about theology is important, but that's not all we're doing when we're doing theology. It's not just like, this is the right thing to say, and so we say it, because when the Bible talks about knowledge, it's this macro category that includes things like salvation, right? So my favorite place to think about this is John seventeen three. This is eternal life that you know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. So here, and this is in the high priestly prayer. So Jesus is saying that eternal life and knowledge of God go hand in hand. So that knowledge of God is a salvific category. It's a category of understanding salvation, not just as saying true things. So whatever it means for us to do theology, you have to like actually be a Christian to do it, because our knowledge isn't just of true facts, but our knowledge is a participatory knowledge of God himself. The object of our knowledge isn't information, it's the triune God. And when that's where we start with the what, that gives a whole um, integrated, exciting way for us to think about the how. Because what we're doing in theology is we're knowing God, and we're knowing God in Christ and growing into his maturity. Now, when we start there, I'm sure some of the listeners immediately are like, oh, man, I can see how that's about the church. Whereas if we had started with, well, saying true things, well, I can't quite figure out how to get this. These are all the specific statements you're supposed to have into the life of the church. What, what does it have to do with preaching? What does that have to do with baptism or the supper or Congregational singing, but when we think about knowing God. Well, obviously those are related. So Torrance, I did my dissertation, and this is my dissertation in Torrance is the overlap of his theological epistemology and his ecclesiology. So that's one of um, so when Torrance starts to give this answer, where do those overlap? He begins with the nature of the church. Where's the place on earth where the people really know God? Well, it's just in the church, right? The only people who really know God in a salvific way are in church, are in the church, and in that sense God God is there because we're indwelt with the spirit united to the son, receiving the life and love of the father. So the nature of the church designates it as the place, the community where we do theology now, the other piece then is, well, how do we grow up in this knowledge? Because salvation is a starting point for knowledge of God, but we're also growing up into this maturity. So if you might think of um, Ephesians 4.13 for this, that we're growing up into the, the maturity of Christ to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ in the unity of the faith. So how, like, how does that happen? Like, has God... Ordained means for us to grow up in maturity? Well, of course he has. Uh, Sometimes we call them ordinances because he's ordained them for a particular purpose. So that the centerpiece of this growing up for us occurs in the ministry of the word and the ministry of sacrament or ordinance. So that God's ordained for us to grow up into this theological knowledge through the preaching of the word think corporately and also in, in small groups or whatever. And but and us then enacting the preaching of the word through our participation in Christ and baptism and participating in the supper. Um, yeah, do you have questions for me at this point? I could talk all day about this.
0: You know, you, I, you've been telling me how you've been working a little bit on Gill as well right now, John Gill, <laughs> And I'm curious, in your reading of him versus somebody like Torrance, are there overlaps and emphases when it comes to this? Are they completely different? What's going on there?
1: It's tough. That's a really tough question. So Torrance uh, doesn't like the way that Gill does theology. It's probably the nicest way I can say it. He, If he were here, he would probably say it more strongly than that. Hmm. Um, so Torrance is highly critical of scholastic methods. So reformed okay. scholasticism is what John Gill is doing. Yeah. And Torrance is highly critical um, of Reformed scholasticism because what he sees in it is an inherent dualism, the bad kind for him. Um, so that somehow our understanding of God is divorced from our the empirical reality in which we live. So this idea of like somehow we need to transcend our humanity is what he's afraid is happening in order for us to know God. But for Torrance, he flips the whole thing on its head and everything centered in the hypostatic union so that it's in in our humanity that Christ became that we know him. So that knowledge of God is always truly divine. So not just about him, but like God himself is present in our knowledge. It's actual participation, but it's also truly human. So everything that's true of human knowledge is also true of our knowledge of God. Which is where the community of the church becomes really important for him. So the idea of like abstracting concepts out of the empirical experience of the church and calling that theology he finds deeply problematic. So the way that Torrance talks about it is he he uses a stratification of knowledge. Um, Alistair McGrath steals the idea from him, but 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 he uh, so he does this stratification of knowledge. So that the bottom tier is the sphere of the church's worship. So the it's the place where we understand God intuitively, but we don't always know what to say about it. So like this is the if we um, if you walk up to the little old ladies in your church who have been serving Christ forever and you ask them to articulately explain the Trinity, well they know God's triune and they can get close but they're probably gonna say something that's associated with the classical heresy, not on purpose, right? But, they have, but if a preacher gets in the pulpit and starts preaching in a way that's anti-Trinitarian, they'll have this intuition that, oh, that's not right. Like, that's not what the Bible says, but they're not always able to articulate it. Um, and then as we keep our feet grounded in this ecclesial experience, our life in the church, then we move up to clearer levels of articulation and then for him, this like top, the top point of that is, is ontological. So all of our theological questions at some point will land themselves in the triunity of God and the hypostatic union of Christ. But we do that whole process never leaving the experience of the church, it's clarifying what we already know within the experience of the church. So there's no abstracting out for him. Whereas Gill's doing something very different. It, it's uh, like this logical abstracted categories, and I, and we can discuss that. And like I'm not even taking Torrance's critiques in total, but they're very, they're very different because Gill is very concerned about these logical causal ways of reasoning that's not inherently like inseparably connected from the experience of the church, even when he's commenting about the experience of the church. Yeah.
0: So Torrance seems to be more just critical of scholasticism in general. Oh, yeah, right? For sure. Okay. That, for that's sure. helpful. <laughs> I, it's funny because, you know, you know, do you know Chris Woznicke? Uh
1: So he and I have interacted some. I've read his stuff. I love the work he's doing on Torrance.
0: So Chris, obviously, like he's analytic theology, which yeah. I think of as like just contemporary scholasticism. And he does a bunch on Torrance. Is. I'm like, that's, that's interesting that he it's, would be doing that.
1: It's so interesting to me. And I, th- I think I've like poked at Chris a little, a little bit on yeah. this, but because the, there are a lot, of, he's not the only one. There are a few analytic theologians who are interested in Torrance. And some of it's because Torrance is a rigorous thinker, right? Yeah. So there's something of the analytics that get drawn to Torrance, because he's very rigorous in the way that he's thinking and processing, But as far as method goes, I'm not sure he's doing what the analytic guys are doing, but that doesn't mean that he can't be a really helpful conversation partner for them, because this is the thing. So because even like Torrance is a Scottish Presbyterian, right, but I'm like a Southern Baptist through it through. But he started his career in the early 1950s in the ecumenical movement, and he's writing a lot of the theology that's undergirding that, and the whole of his theological project is really, I mean, like genuinely centered everything on the hypostatic union, which means that Christians generally find him accessible, because he's talking about the one thing that we all agree about, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so everyone can find something in him that that feels familiar, because he's just doing something that's essentially Christian, but not necessarily fitting neatly within some type of category of tradition or method.
0: Yeah, and I don't know the the family tree, but the Torrances that live now that are at St Andrews and they're yeah. like a part of the Center for Analytic Theology. So <laughs> ironic how all that worked. That's that's super interesting to me.
1: Right, um, right. No, yeah. Torrence T. F. Torrance is the one we're talking about. I should make that clear. I'm talking about Thomas Forsyth Torrance. I did my dissertation on him, and he and his brother J.B., are like kind of at the top, and then their kids kind of cycle down, and even some of the sisters' kids become involved in time, but he doesn't have the Torrance name. He has a Walker last name, but.
0: So we did an interview with Chris that at the moment of us talking right now, it hasn't been released yet. So there's no shame in not knowing what he said. I am curious. He basically told me all these really cool things about TF Torrance, about being like, these just like Epic stories do yeah, you have any epic stories you want to share about Torrance? I know this is totally off topic, but I just think it's fascinating.
1: Yeah, no, uh, he's a fascinating human being. So, like, there's some fun I, I don't know what stories he told. There are a lot of fun stories about, like, after he retired. This is one of my, it's not really fun, but it's, it, it's treasured to me. After he retired, he retired relatively young. Most of his writing actually happened after he retired. But he went back to China to serve the churches that his dad had planted, you know, 50 or 60 years earlier, which I already had a lot of respect for him. Uh, And that increased it. He also turned down a position at Princeton so that he would be able to serve in the church in Scotland and be a chaplain during the Second World War. So that's pretty amazing. But my favorite anecdotal story is, um, (laughs) so word on the street is, Uh, he, so he's in the UK working in the UK schooling system in late 20th century. And so is John Hick. So John Hick is like, for those of you who don't know, is like the fount head of like pluralism. Um, and has this, and all of his works kind of have this strong rejection of the exclusivity of Christ. So the, as the story goes, there's this one day that Torrance is sitting down with John Hick and John Hick says, like, I just cannot imagine. How you could possibly believe in the exclusivity of Christ? And Torrance looks at him and he says, "It's because you're not regenerate." And that was it. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Which, which he's not incorrect. I'm not sure that that's the most like missional, contextual way to engage that conversation. But it's true. The reason John Hick can't believe it is because he has not been renewed in Christ.
0: I respect it. It's a straightforward, serious answer. (laughs) Now, I don't remember what all you said exactly about this in your dissertation, but something along the lines of theological method having some sort of reciprocal nature where I mean, we can kind of learn and go back and forth. I think, I don't know who is it, Billings and other people, you know, say how the community of the church can shape our interpretation in various ways. Does this destabilize the meaning of the text. So I'm thinking of those who have been reared more in the grammatical historical is the only way to interpret scripture because otherwise you're going to open up Pandora's box and you're going to have 50,000 meanings, and no way to really get back and say, this one's right. And this one's wrong. So like, help me think through how do we, have consistent, clear, like this is actually what scripture teaches, and yet have some sort of reciprocal nature between the church and other methods and our understanding of what the text means?
1: Yeah, a, a great question and an important one. And I'll say I share the instinct, right? The idea that we have an there's no mooring, no anchoring for the meaning of the text. I, I'm concerned about that too, right? So that's the last thing I would want is to have a free-for-all, entirely reader response approach to the biblical text. Um, so let's do it, uh, we'll do it two different ways. So one, we'll think about the church and the word. And then the other, I think we can think with the apostles, like how do the apostles answer this question or the early church? Irenaeus is my go-to for this this question. So in terms of word and church, now, when you heard Heard is an important word. I don't even know how to say it without saying the word heard. When did you first come to know the gospel? For most people, the answer is not when I was reading a book. The answer is someone told you, right? So that your access to the gospel has always come through the voice of the church. But it's not the voice of the church as its origin. It's the voice of the church according to the written text of scripture. So that at an intuitive level, right, so if we, if we take Torrance's stratification of knowledge, at this bottom intuitive level, we know that there's something about the church's proclamation and our knowledge of God that's instinctive in what it means to be Christian. And that, and that existence in no way unmoors it from the text because the origin wasn't the church, The origin is the text that's inspired by the triune God and reveals the sun. So we don't have to be kind of uncomfortable about this. We can be like normally Christian, right? Like like this is the way that normal Christian things work, including like almost everyone who's listening who's a Christian. Well, you believed on the gospel because someone preached it to you. Someone told you and they told you that was true according to the text. So there's something normally Christian, and the, and the biblical text presupposes that, right? It expects for that to be true. That's the stories that are being told in the text, is of one person telling another, a believing in faith, baptism, and then at some point, some engagement with the text. Okay, so that, we should just be chill and be normal Christians. We don't have to be weird about it. The other piece, though, so how then do we have some type of anchoring where it doesn't become a free-for-all? So the strictest forms of grammatical historical, just to kind of give credence to the fact that there is a fair amount of diversity among people who might take that that term as the centerpiece of their hermeneutic. So let, let's take let me, the most strictest form, right, is that the, um, the mooring for the text, the anchoring comes from some type of historical uh, background coupled with the kind of nitty gritty of the grammar. Man, I'm I'm real cool with the nitty-gritty of the grammar piece because the words of the Bible are inspired, not just the ideas and concepts, but the actual words of the Bible, including its grammatical constructs, are inspired and are necessary for us to understand. So I'm going to keep that piece. But how then? Who who gets to pick what becomes the overarching way of interpreting the text? So this is. Um, I'm hesitant to use the superlative here, but like maybe the reason that I find myself more and more thinking with the early church fathers, because I was asking this question and Irenaeus gave a better answer than any answer I've ever heard. And I can't find a way around it. And in fact, I've gone to a lot of my friends and said, can you help me not believe this? Because people think I'm weird because I believe it. Uh, Can you talk me out of it? And I've yet to have someone do it. But if I have a listener who's like, I can talk you out of it. By all means, give it your best shot. Um, I'm, I'm actually very open <laughs> to being talked about it because people think I'm weird. Okay, so what Irenaeus says is that um, the elders received from the apostles a way. This is on demonstration of apostolic preaching. If you want to follow along, the elders received from the apostles a way of reading the text, and the apostles received it from Christ, who is the Word of the text, so that the Spirit inspires the Word of God. That's the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes as the word of God, interprets that text authoritatively. And then he teaches that to the apostles who have then passed it on to the elders who pass it on to us. Now, the apostles are the ones who write the New Testament. And so there's something about the apostolic reading of the Old Testament that is the measuring, the anchoring of our interpretation of the text so that the text itself is its anchor like it doesn't? We don't need an external anchor. Whatever you want to think that it should be, the text anchors itself because Christ has interpreted interpreted himself for the apostles who have then inscribed that way of reading in the text of the New Testament. Now that also lets me avoid having to create some type of external authority so that there's a. Because um, I'm like so phenomenally Baptist. I, I don't want ecclesial authorities over some of these things, right? And I, But I don't have to because the authority is apostolic. So I have an apostolic authority. These are the ones who are witnesses of these things, who are led into all truth by the Spirit so that they've given the authoritative reading of the text. I don't need an external uh, locus of authority. Yeah, that, that's helpful.
0: Now I do want to spend also some time on thinking through you you've mentioned the ordinances a little bit uh Wait. with Torrance. I mean, what do they have to do specifically with our theological method and knowing God? Um, are there shared presuppositions that you've seen among Torrance and other thinkers like him that you would say th- they all sort of agree on this approach?
1: Yeah. So, um I think what what we can all agree on and I think I, I actually am comfortable to say this like, all Christians in some sense think of at least baptism and the supper, sometimes more, not really ever less, as something that's really special. Like, there's something very special about what's happening in baptism and the supper. Even if we have like wildly different ideas about what those are or when they should happen or what's happening when they happen, everyone agrees there's something special. And we all agree that that something special comes from God himself, right? That that God, I'll use the Baptistic way that we would normally say it, that God has ordained this way of acting. These are ordinances. And even people who would take sacramental language, which I'm not opposed to by any means, um, we just have to be careful what we mean. And in context, sometimes people freak out, but you don't freak out. Uh, <laughs> so uh, even if we take sacramental language, it's still like God has given us these things. And these things through which he is acting to do something, right so sometimes in a contemporary context, maybe it's just my my experiences um, but we talk about like baptism as like this thing that you're believers' baptism right? I'm a Baptist uh, this thing that you're like supposed to do, but like nothing is ha- like nothing is happening here like y'all y'all don't even look. we're just doing it because Jesus told us to and it's obedient. so like we're just gonna do it because we're obedient people, so here we go. Um, as opposed to like, man, God has ordained this for us, for our growth and maturity. There's something real occurring when we baptize people. Now, as believers, Baptists, I'm going to say that that something real is because this person is actually united to God in Christ so that when they enact their death and resurrection, dying beneath the waves and being raised to new life out of it, they're actually participating in the death and resurrection of Christ in that moment. They have died with him. They are risen with Him. And there's something spiritually formative as God's Spirit Himself works through this act of baptism. And then the same we can say of supper with a little bit less diversity with our fights about when, when we're baptizing. Uh, well, we can all agree that at the supper, man, there's this is a God-ordained practice that He said that He'd be with us while we're doing it. And it's this remembrance, but a remembrance of of um, lived activity, right? There's, there's this participation aspect of remembrance, that we're participating in his death as we break the bread uh, and pour the cup and eat and drink, uh, as we look forward to then his return. But he's present in that activity. And that's why I just want to talk about this all the time, because my experience in church wasn't that we approached either baptism or the spirit or, or the supper with an expectation that God was present and at work, but he is doing something uh, and that something is growing us into the maturity of Christ. He's always doing that one something. That one something is either growing us up or growing us out. And these are grow up ordinances. We grow up into Christ's maturity as we invite others into it, And that's how we grow out.
0: Yeah, that that's really helpful. And I'm totally not afraid of the word sacrament. I prefer it. Um, I think there's something special and meaningful about it that, that gets something that ordinance misses. I mean, both of them get at unique aspects of it. But I like the sacramental language because of the the sort of the participatory mysterious nature of how it is that the Lord uses these ordinary objects to encourage us and grow us in our faith in Christ. So I I always like it. But you're right, especially among our Baptist listeners. We've got to remind them, like, we don't mean this in a particular way that you might have heard it growing up. Um, I I get that a lot from a lot of uh, people who grew up um, in different ecclesial traditions, and I don't want to throw shade on them, so I'm just going to leave it just at that, and they came to Christ in a different tradition, say Baptist, and they look back on when they weren't Christians in this one, and they look with skepticism on some of the the terminology and things unnecessarily. Well, necessarily and unnecessarily. There's some aspect of just, I remember these terms here, and I wasn't a Christian here, and therefore I have negative connotations with it. Does that make sense?
1: It, no, it makes perfect sense. I'm thinking. so right now, I'm doing a little bit more work in Baptist history. Torrance taught me a lot, and now I'm like, how do we do Torrancey things, but in a Baptisty way? Um, and uh, this there's not a hard stretch to do that to be honest. Uh, but I'm doing a lot of research kind of in Baptist history at the moment, and it's re- and particularly on sacramentalism or and and Baptist engagement with thinking about sacraments. And it's really interesting because the uh, people start moving away from it relatively early. so, uh, Stanley Fowler has a book on sacramentalism, and he actually identifies Gill as the first move away. That Gil's the first theologian who doesn't use the word sacrament. He's right. He never uses the term sacrament. Um, and what he's doing is, I, I, I'll present on this at ETS, and I'll just be live by them, but ETS, my paper, is actually about Gil and baptism and how he lacks the, the move of the spirit in baptism. Um, so that he has these, like, he... Gill's right that there's something happening, so he at least has that, but he never connects it with the Spirit, and that's prob- that creates a, a divorce and the activity of the Son to the, the Spirit. But I digress. But when you do American Baptists, by the mid-19th century and the Campbellite controversy, there's something that's rigidly solidified in American Baptist ways of thinking. That's a really strong rejection of sacramentalism. And from that point forward, it's pretty pervasive. Um, there are occasional outliers, but the from the Campbellite controversy moving forward, pretty much everybody is like anti-sacramentalism. And then that gets reinforced again in the early 20th century when there's a significant amount of anti-Roman Catholic. Um, ways of thinking because of the waves of immigration. And so it becomes even more, we don't want to think that we're Roman Catholic. So we can't say anything that's remotely like it because politically we don't want to be associated with the immigrants. I did quotations, you can't see it, but like the immigrants quotation. Uh, And so all those, the reasons that we are that way, there's something in our tradition that actually is that. And it's demonstrably historically uh, and not all of that's good. Maybe we could be better Baptists.
0: Yeah. No, that's good. <laughs> now I do want to ask you one last question, and this is a little bit off topic and maybe it puts you sure. on the hot seat. I don't know. Come so on. you're a bit of a unicorn. You're a woman <laughs> with a PhD at yeah. a Southern Baptist seminary. So I want to ask almost two aspects of this. So one that's going to offend one set of people, and one that's going to offend another set of people. So I just sure. equally offend everybody. Um, and you can punt these if you want to, but I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, I imagine your experience is difficult in some senses where people look at you and say, well, you're a woman. What can you offer in a theological context when, if you affirm things like uh, 1 Timothy 2, uh, where, you know, women aren't allowed to teach or exercise authority. So how in the world do you fit this together? But on the other side, I I also want to know, encourage those people in the context that believe that to say no, this is why we should encourage women to go get PhDs in theology and say that this is an important thing to do. So I want to know like both ends of the spectrum a little bit.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I'm not bothered at all. I'm, I get this question all the time and I just realize it's a part of my like yeah, state yeah. of being that people are curious. Uh, so I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about it. So um, often when I speak to people, and they pull me into a dark corner with hushed tones or like what it's real what's it really like <laughs> uh they kind of expect for me to have some dirt but like I oh don't, I, don't, I like i really don't have dirt uh at least not not much of substance um, my experience has been that especially at southeastern uh, like i wouldn't do what i'm doing if it weren't for the faculty at southeastern when I was a graduate student, they sought me out and said, hey, we think you're uniquely gifted We thought about doing a PhD. And I would have never, ever, ever thought about it if it weren't for the men on faculty who singled me out and encouraged me to do it. Um, and then all through my PhD program, there were there are more women in our program now. There were less women then. But even then, like, my peers were super supportive. There was one guy one time that said something phenomenally offensive. But <laughs> in, in, in any context, there's always going to be that one guy one time who says something that's phenomenally offensive. So, like, I'm not it's just life that that's gonna be he's gonna
0: offend everybody no matter what it <laughs> that's is right,
1: that's right and it wasn't just me um so my peers were super supportive the faculty was great i'd studied under keith whitfield who's the provost here at southeastern he's phenomenally supportive of me and like even after that my peers in southern baptist life have gone out of their way to create spaces for me to contribute um so I, my experience has not I, I don't actually receive a whole lot of pushback to my face. i'm sure there are people who are saying things in other ways but anyone who's who's actually speaking to me, engaging me personally, or even in ways that are like I'm within earshot, have been so phenomenally encouraging And to the point that like, I would have never dreamed of doing the things that I was doing if the men around me hadn't dreamed it for me, and created spaces for me to do it. So um, and that's the truest of true stories uh, on that. Now the other pieces, but like, why should women do things like this? Well, I mean, one, there are a lot of different types of complementarianism. We're, we're talking around the idea. of I'm happy to use the term. There are different types of complementarians. And I think there's a way for both different types. So I'm in the category of I affirm male headship in the home and the church, but not pervasively in, in all of creation. It's not the way I read the Bible because the apostles didn't teach me to read it that way.
0: Am I allowed to Uh, (laughs) ask? Are you allowed to ask for, Oh wait, is it me? No. Am I allowed to ask you for directions? That's, that's the key question that I always lead with.
1: (laughs) Yes. You can, I can tell you where to go. Uh, And when I worked in Chick-fil-A and had men that reported to me, like that was okay too. Uh, And so, so anyway, in either way, it is good for women who are gifted in knowledge and teaching To steward that gift to the best of their ability that they might serve the church. Now, you may not think it's appropriate for a woman to teach a mixed uh, context where men and women are, are both students under them. And like, that's okay. But even if it's just women, just women quotes, like women are valuable enough. that it's good for women who are teaching them to be well credentialed in the teaching. Because for men, we know that instinctively, right? So if you wanna be a pastor and you have an MDiv, you wanna author things, you probably need an advanced degree. Well, women are important enough for those same standards as well. So if you wanna teach women, man, you should probably have formal theological education at the graduate level. If you wanna write books for women, then it'd probably be good for you to have an advanced degree. Now, if you're in my kind of group of complementarianism, man, there's all sorts of ways for women to be uh, teaching and, and providing opportunities to serve men that aren't related to pulpit teaching or in any way a challenge to the authority of pastors, elders, overseers in the context of the local church. Uh, and in fact, is a service to it. So like I was hanging out with one of my pastors yesterday and he was like, Christy, I got some questions. So we had a good theological conversation and my theological expertise was a service to him. So that he's actually a better pastor for me having done a PhD. Uh, I I can serve him and not, and that's not a challenge to his authority because he ain't gotta be everything. I'm the one who's gifted to knowledge. Let me serve the church in that way. So yeah. anyway, it's good for women to to steward their gifts and serve the church.
0: That's good. That's helpful. And I, I do want you to give a little bit of self-serving explanation here. <laughs> You've got books that are coming out, all the fun stuff. So tell me about those books that are coming what you're working on, and then I know you're on Twitter. Are you anywhere else that people should be following you?
1: No, I'm, I'm really just on Twitter um, of, any, of any consequence. So you're welcome to follow me on Twitter at Christelis. Uh, and at book projects, so most of them are pretty far in the future. The first one that will come out, so I'm working with a group of other theologians kind of across Southern Baptist life and doing some type of Baptist dogmatics project. Um, and thinking of like, what's it like to do dogmatics as Southern Baptists and and working in some of these method questions. So uh, as a part of that project, there will actually be a number of books that are coming out. We're working on contracts for some of them. Some of them are already contracted. Uh, The first one comes out in fall of 24, and it's an anthology that I'm editing with Keith Whitfield and Steve McKinnon with like 24 contributors from across Southern Baptist life Introducing what we've kind of put together as a um, Baptist dogmatic project centered around a theology that's historic, ecclesial, covenantal, and uh, com- confessional, but are the kind of the four planks of the method. So, yeah, that book comes out in fall of 24. Fall of 23, there will be a Southeastern Theological Review dedicated to this new method with an introduction um, to our Baptist dogmatics manifesto. And then, you know, a few years, a hot minute from now, Steve McKinnon and I are writing a one-volume Systematic Theology uh, with b that will be kind of the cohesive, one-way-of-thinking introduction uh, to Baptist dogmatics for as a graduate-level textbook.
0: Yeah, There are probably
1: others, but those are the important ones.
0: That's the one I'm most excited about, is the one with you McKinnon. I think that will be uh, just an awesome service to the church and especially to Baptist seminaries. I mean, w- what a combo. You and McKinnon, I-, I just love it. So I think that's going to be a really unique and awesome yeah. opportunity there. I'm so, so stoked. Christy, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with talk with me about all these fun things. Uh, I-, I know that our listeners will be edified. So thanks for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. And everybody's been listening. you got to check out Christy's stuff. So <laughs> go follow her on Twitter. That way you know when the books are released and all those things, and you can keep up with everything. Um, and if you're thinking about studies at Southeastern, I know that she would love to hear from you so you can find her email and email her and ask her all the questions that you have about the programs that they have. So everybody's been tuning in. Thanks again. This is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon. (laughs)